Yeah, no, 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 hell no. That is what this show is for. That's all people want is they want to hear someone making collages of little girls talk about chaos theory. Hi, I'm John Mejias in New York. And I'm Zach Smith in Los Angeles. And this is Weed Art. A podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about... I've been asked, why don't you put backgrounds in the work? And I said, because I want you to uh, engage the person in the picture and not look at anything else. To see her, because all my work, the girl looks directly at you. She's engaging you in the day. And it's asking me, if you can see me as a human, then I exist. I'm playing with a lot of stuff in this little girl in here. And today we're talking with... Deborah Roberts about I do a lot of research on my images I go to some little girls in Haiti I look for faces in Haiti I look for faces in African countries some American faces there is a unique strength and innocence in the faces in Haiti girls they have not been touched by pop culture as much as American girls have I feel more of me how I was when I see those faces and that's what I want to project in the work a fierceness, but yet a, a innocence. When I was eight years old, it took a lot to make me cry. The last resort was to cry. And the faces that I'm trying to project, I want that to be the last result is to cry. Let me figure out everything else I can do. And then at the end of the day, if that doesn't work, then yeah, I break down. But I'm going to work at being strong. Hey, what part of Texas are you in, Deborah? I'm located in Austin, you know, the place where everybody wants to live and everybody is living. Yes, Austin, Texas. So you're, you're, you're pro-Texas, obviously. I always wanted to live there. And, you know, Austin keeps getting on all these favorite places to live, but true Austinites, we're saying, stop, please, no more, you know, people. The traffic is really quite horrible, but nothing like L.A. We can't compete with that, but... At least y'all have the infrastructure for many of the people coming in, and we don't. Yeah, you should have just lied about where you were so that people wouldn't think, oh, she's, she sounds cool, I should move wherever she's at. <laughs> sounds like we're going to have like a Portlandia yeah. effect soon in Austin. Right, yeah, exactly. Are you uh, born and raised in Texas? Yes, um, yeah, I'm born here in Austin and lived here pretty much my whole life. I went uh, away to school to Syracuse to get my MFA in San Francisco. I'm back in Austin. I wasn't sure if I'm going to come back here, but I'm here, so. Now you're sure that you came back. You're definitely in Austin. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, there's a chance I might be moving maybe to Philadelphia or some other place and have a little bit more diversity. So right now I'm here in Austin. You said you were born in Austin. What was your first inkling that you wanted to be an artist or your first contact with something that you thought of as art? Mine is really funny. I was in the third grade and I wasn't sure that I always wanted to be an artist. But that was a little boy who I was so in love with. His name was Rudolph. And Rudolph knew how to draw really good. So the only way to be friends with Rudolph, my feminine wild in the third grade, was to start drawing too. So I would get next to him and I would start drawing. He would draw racing cards and I would draw racing cards. And then he would draw planes and I would draw planes. And my planes started to look better than his. And then I was like, <laughs> I think I like drawing better than Rudolph. You know, <laughs> so I had to kick Rudolph to the curb, and I just started, you know, doing art. 
And so I started from in third grade, and I've just continued, you know, through high school, just doing art all the time. And I went to an art magnet school. It wasn't really considered magnet at that time. It was just, I, I had art the last three hours of the day. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. I noticed on your CV, you received the Presidential Point of Light from President yeah. George H. Bush in 1991. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does that mean, that you were a point of light? Okay, so when President Bush was president, he started giving a thousand people this award for their community service. You know, I come from a family of eight kids and two parents, and the last thing that anybody even thinks about is being an artist. And so, like, in the summer, I always thought that my art suffered because I never had access to materials, to museums. And so when I got in my early 20s, I thought that there were artists out there like me. And so I started a program called Success Comes in Cans, Not in Cannots. What I would do would get kids between 12 and 17. I would offer a summer arts program. It was free. And all the materials, and the only thing I wanted them to do was to come every day, take a three-hour class, and really, really dive into the art. I invited guest speakers, because if you don't see people who are successful, it's hard to, you know, imagine success. Yeah. So I would have people come in and give their life stories. So somehow Washington heard about it, and they decided that I was one of the people worthy of a point of light from President Bush. They give you this letter that he writes you, and and then you get to go to Disney World. <laughs> Disney World is just part Disney of it. World. <laughs> yeah, it's it great. And then you come home and just you know keep giving. Did Lord, they just yeah. send you to Disney World, or were you there with other people who had gotten the award? Yeah, we were there with other Points of Light uh, recipients. Because everyone has always wondered what that Points of Light speech meant. And what he meant, it turns out, a thousand points of light, is it he was sending a thousand people to Disneyland. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a monetary award, and it was for volunteering. And I was like, I don't want to say it was a participation trophy, because it wasn't, because not everybody participated in volunteering, but it was an acknowledgement of your service, your community service. So I just, I got the award, and I went on and continued to do what I was doing. So you're already in your 20s by this point, though. Yeah, I was in the early 20s, bro. Early 20s, okay? Don't lie. Rudolph was who got you into drawing, but what was the first person that made you think, okay, I could be a professional artist. Like, this would be my job. Right. I was home on break. I went to North Texas, North Texas, and this guy had called me and said he wanted to do a show in Atlanta, and he would come up and pick me up. He's going to set up a, what they consider were home shows where you would go to a wealthy person's home and they would take down all their work and you would put up your work and then they invite their guest list and they would come and people would look at the work and purchase it. So he came up and got me, went to do a show in Atlanta and I sold out all the work. And I said, oh my God, this is this. And then I did a show in Chicago later in the year and I said, oh my God, this is really it. So I, after that, this is the way to go. I was getting everything I wanted. I was selling work. I was getting recognition for the work. I was able to pay some bills. I think that was the first idea that I knew I could kind of make a living at it. One of the things that sustained me as a professional artist all these years is that although people told me, you know, you're not going to really earn a lot of money, 
that wasn't the point for me. It was like doing the work and being allowed to do it, getting my craft really strengthened. I, I, I guess I was kind of dumb. I didn't know that, you know, you were going to starve. And, and boy, did I starve. <laughs> uh, we've interviewed a few artists from Texas, and I know some artists from Texas. It's consistently surprising that there's actually a, a pretty big collecting and public infrastructure supporting art in Texas. It's just, I think, Texas is so big that there's a lot of other stuff in Texas, and so people don't think of Texas as being like a place that really supports the arts. But it seems like it really is. Like, there's a lot of artists who they get found by collectors or they get found by curators down there. Mm-hmm. Right. Every time we talk to someone from Texas, there's that surprise. Right. I think Houston in particular is a very good city for the arts. I mean, they have a lot of major museums, also Dallas Fort Worth, but Houston in particular have amazing curators. You know, Valerie Cassell Oliver, who, who was at the Capitol just recently, is very instrumental in helping artists get on the national spotlight. We have a core program in Houston. There are a lot of different ways to be successful in the state of Texas as an artist, but not all cities are as open to the arts. I think it just has to be in the right place at the right time, just like with anything. Yeah. Who are the, the artists that were influential to you in the beginning? The people who, you know, made you think, that's somebody who is on my wavelength. Like the earliest people when you were young. Well, you know, the work that I'm doing now and the work that I did back then is totally two different types of work. Mm-hmm. I was doing the black narrative up until I was age 40. So I did a lot of church scenes, a lot of a little kids in the garden, the black experience. So the work was really different. So uh, Thomas Hart Benton, you know, I really loved his work. You know, Vincent Van Gogh. Now, I love Vincent Van Gogh. The thought of him, I love the Renaissance artists, all of that, that beauty, Rembrandt, Da Vinci, all of that stuff like that. Most of my heroes were artists who have lived their art practice. So I didn't have any current people that I was looking at. Oh, actually, I take that back. Norman Rockwell was one of the artists that I looked at a lot because I thought the innocence in his work was what I wanted people to see about black people and how we loved each other and we went to church on Sunday and how we wanted the best for our kids and things like that. And I thought that that type of imagery wasn't being projected throughout the media. So that was my work back then. Mm-hmm. I tell you, the first artist that I saw that was a black artist was Henry O. Tanner, the banjo player. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was the first black artist I ever saw. I couldn't believe it. I was mesmerized. How old were you at that point? I think I was about 17. Oh, wow. I know. Sounds like I was shut in, but I could not believe it. It was so beautiful. And the skin tone, because I hadn't seen that before. You went to a, a high school for the arts, right? Yeah, it was black. Uh, were there a lot of black students there, or were there black teachers there? Because I went to a high school for the arts in D.C., and so Tanner was like one of the first people that they would show us. But mm-hmm. what was it like? My primary high school was totally African-American and Hispanic. Mm-hmm. But when I went to that other school, they busted us across town, and I was the only black person oh, in okay. that class. And so, no, it wasn't any shown of any, any black artists. You know, when I've taken art, I've always been the only black person, pretty much, after high school in my classes. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, so you have to really do some scholarship to find stuff. With the access of the Internet right now, it sounds so archaic. But you really have to go to the library and get books and really find African-American artists to look at. You know. I remember on the, the Cosby show when they had like oh, yeah. the black artists in the background, like Varnett mm -hmm. Honeywood. Yeah, the reruns of Good Times. JJ was an amazing artist. Yeah, and, he was a sculptor. Um, yeah, Ernie Barnes. <laughs> Ernie Barnes. He made all those really rubbery figures. They were great figures. Yeah, wonderful figures. And so that was really good. Then I got bits and pieces and stuff like that uh, that sustained me. But it was a story I wanted to tell. My story is some of the uh, weird things that happened in my family made kids and that made really funny and amazing works. It was that type of stuff until the work started demanding the change and then I had to listen to it. The funny stories from your family, like, can you give us an example? We like funny stories. I don't know if they're just super funny, but, you know, I didn't have my own bed until I went to college. I mean, I had to share a bed. <laughs> I have four sisters, three sisters. Uh, we were all like having sleep in the same bed. So I don't know if that was funny. We tell stories and stuff like that. So I did a lot of drawings, um, like two people at the front, at the top of the bed, and then one person at the bottom because we didn't all want to touch each other. And just really growing up with four brothers that were part of my drawings of baseball. We used to play baseball in the middle of the street, and we tried to strike people out and the whole thing. And So those were part of a lot of the... Um, drawings and the paintings I did from, from that era. You were painting with oil, I assume? I used to do all mediums. You know, I think I heard when I was in high school that a real artist knew how to work in all mediums. So I used to do airbrush, watercolor, pencil, chart. You know, I studied all of that. But a lot of it was self-taught, the things I didn't know, and so I got it. I can do it all. I can do cartooning. Everything that needed to be learned about being a professional artist, I was, after, I was ready to do it. I've been always earnest with it. I've always given it the time that it needed to figure out things and to conquer. A lot of things have, you know, kicked my butt, but there's been more successes than failures. Was your family supportive uh, of that, or were they like, this isn't going to work? This is not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> it's about 50-50 of artists we interview. Half the families are like, this isn't going to work. And the other half are like, no, go be an artist. Yeah, no, 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 hell no. Mine was new. It wasn't going to work. You know, why are you doing it? It's a waste of time. Never going to be successful at it. But, you know, I don't really blame them anymore about that because they didn't have any examples of somebody as a successful artist yeah. and somebody who was as driven as I am. It was foreign to them. To a certain degree, it is. You know, I still have people today. Is your family coming? No, they're not. I had a neighbor who was, I remember when I won Artist of the Year in Austin, and I was really disappointed that no one even wanted to come. I had a neighbor tell me, she said, look, it's nothing to do with you. They, they're not interested. Get over it and be your own champion. I listened to her that day, and after that, I didn't care whether they came or not. And I usually didn't come, but it didn't matter because I knew that it was important to me. You were Artist of the Year. and Even recently? With all the success? Yeah. Don't tell nobody. <laughs> Even Artist of the Year twice in Austin. I was Artist of the Year twice, yeah. And you had a show in the Studio Museum in Harlem recently. This is, you know. I know. It's a big deal. <laughs> You're doing good. I mean, what can you say? I mean, you people are not interested. Uh, I know that they're happy if I tell them about something, but 
I just think Beyonce Baltimore to me, that would be impressive. You know, something like that. Something that is very relatable. But to say that I'm in Shunt Studio Museum of Harlem, which has been one of my top museums that I want to show at, I was like, okay. I was like, dude, that's a big deal. Okay, I like that. When you got out of school, it was a while before you started showing. So what were some jobs you had when you got out of school? Out of graduate school, recently, I really didn't have really real jobs, but, oh my God, when I got a Syracuse mm-hmm. and came back to Austin and I really didn't know what I was going to do, I went to work at a library and I was able to do some research on finding female artists, some project they put me on. Why would I work in a library? I mean, it's nothing wrong with librarians. It's just that was the last place I saw myself. Uh, that was just a really a short-term job. And then I couldn't find any type of work. Uh, and then I ended up working at Academy in, here in Austin. And that was really tough. Someone saying that there's no small jobs, only small people. So I took that type of attitude to work with him. It was like, yeah, yeah, there are small people and small jobs. And that was really <laughs> Like there wasn't a lot of room there for you to expand on what was going on. But at the, at the shoe store? Yeah. Oh, my God, what didn't go on? Oh, my God, I had to pack this big 10-foot ladder to climb up on it. I'm an old lady. Some guys would try to say, let us get up. I would have to get boots down and... You know, help people find shoes and death prevention, you know. I didn't mind being a cop, shoe cop. Sundays, man. Sundays was tough at the academy. That was the time people came to shoplift. So you had to not only serve the people there, but you also had to be a shoe cop. I, <laughs> I tell you, that was rough. If I never see an orange Nike box again in my whole life, I would be okay. I would be fine. And sketches. How many sketches do they have to really produce? I mean, really. They have every type of sketcher for every walk of life. That was awful. I mean, sketches, need to, they need to stop. Well, I noticed a lot of people yeah. in, your, in your work aren't wearing shoes. Is that just because you can't look at another pair of shoes? <laughs> no, I just, I mean, I just finished a painting I'm looking at, and it's like, tons of shoes it's like someone's sitting in front of all their shoes any sketchers yeah I, n- I never worked in a shoe store so i probably i'm fine with that yeah a lot of my my kids are barefooted now i'm starting to on a little chuck because i don't have to deal with that that often oh yeah um, chucks are but, great to yeah, drop because they're super easy yeah 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 the shoe store when i had to get there 6 30 because they would just destroy the store we had to restock in the morning and then refresh when the customer come in at, at 9 o'clock. That was a tough job. It's a young person's job, and it's a trap job because they give you little raises to get you to stay. You know, they give you raises. So that's a trap. Before you know it, you're there five years. And you're like, what happened to these five years? And so you have to be mindful to realize this is a temporary thing. You're doing this so that you can go... 20 hours here, and then work the other 20 hours on your practice. So you have to be really careful when you work jobs like that. I have to stop. I also feel like there's a lot of kneeling at the shoe store. Like, I remember, uh, what's his name on Married with Children? Right. A husband (laughs) on that, he worked at a shoe store, and the idea was, you know, 
that's not a great job. You're serving people in a very clear way. They come in and then you measure their foot and then you go, what about this and what about that? I know. I can tell you the very, very best part of working in the shoe store was helping older people, elderly people find shoes. They were the most grateful people when you found them the perfect shoe so they could walk in and find them socks and, you know, thermal socks and things like that. That was the best thing. You knew they needed help, and they were just so grateful when they found it because it made their life easier. So as an elderly person, you hate going to the store because you can't see. I mean, you have to sit down. So being able to help them find shoes, now that was a blessing that whole job the rest of it you know which is for the birds so this is the same time that you're working with kids and you're doing the program that eventually got you the points of light mm-hmm. eventually though you got into collage well i, I started collaging in 2011 i just started doing a couple faces and then i started doing my face as an eight-year-old when i started talking about beauty and identity and and how people really were seeing little black girls I just started working on a series called The Miseducation of Mimi. I decided I was going to do 200 little images. I just kept working, and the collages started to get better. And then when I graduated, I, I did some really large ones, and then I just reduced them down really to some 10 by 13 to hone in on what I really wanted the faces to look like. And then I just went back up again to 30 by 22, and the faces just started to come, they just started falling off the page, you know. It just started to reveal itself. Why did you call it the miseducation of Mimi? Well, two things. You know, Mariah Carey, her nickname is Mimi. I always thought that she had a hard place finding herself, who she was, you know, that her mother's white, her father's black, just finding her place. I don't know if it's true or not, but it felt like she always was looking for love. <laughs> you know, her place, you know, in society as a biracial person. And then the miseducation came from Lauren Hill. Right. And Lauren Hill was like on time. She knew who she was. She was a strong black woman. So I just merged the two things and thought that I would move in that work based on those two women. The idea of who they were from a strong one to one someone trying to find themselves. And each was a black so how did that work? And this would have been like the year after Mariah Carey had that studio album where she was like, Mimi was in the title too. Yeah. The something of yeah. Mimi. And wow. there were the songs she was famous for, but then there was this whole drama, like she wasn't writing her own songs and other people were pushing her right. around and she was just being treated as a voice. Right. And everybody was like, what's going on with Mariah Carey? And then she put out that album, which was like, this is me. You know? Yeah, Mimi. Yeah. Right. Mimi, you know, it's like Shamika. When you get mad, you know, Shamika will come out. Now, you don't want Shamika to come. She was just beating her chest in that album, you know, telling people who she was, which is cool. And, you know, if you look at my work now, that's what some of the girls in my work do. You know, this is who I am. Was Romare Bearden's black and white collages an influence on these? Oh, God, yes. I, I just recently went back and started looking at Romare Beard, and I can't look at it too much because it does start influencing in my work. But his work is just so amazing. I think I was at, I may have been at the Whitney Museum, and I saw a piece of his that really started to influence the way I create my faces now. Because I don't think before I was having big faces, big parts, big, big, bigger eyes, and, Small, so the 
Someone's shape started to change by watching the way he applied the collages. And I said, you know, I really like that. And it made my girls multidimensional. They were never a full page. You know, I think sometimes people look at, at black people as partial people. I was just speaking that type of language. But the way he enlarged lips or enlarged nose or something and set back the eye, it, it just worked in my work. I started really saying, okay, let me see if I can use that technique in my work. So Ramir Bearden has been a big, big influence in my work. So has Hannah Hawk, you know, the way mm. that she has added women and African masks and legs and, and this different sizes and shapes, the whole Dadaism movement and stuff like that. Let stuff float on the page without having to, like, set it down to create a plane for it. I even like, you know, when Gachi Luchu and how she oh, yeah. really pushes the envelope of these monstrous images. I also thought of Ezra Jack Keats, his children's books when I saw your work, like Goggles or um, Snowy Day. Everyone's got those patterns on their clothes. Yeah. Well, I would tell people when I do these girls, you know, even with boys too, because I think they're just a little, as you get older. But most importantly for girls, when you're about six, seven, eight, that's when you start to dress yourself or you want to dress yourself. And you, mm-hmm. It's your first act of independence. And your parents, even though they say, don't put this together, but you want to put different types of clothes together because you're creating your own style. And that style sucks. Everybody knows it sucks. (laughs) You know, but you think it's great. I love the act of independence. That becomes a human, you know, really a human with your own thoughts and ideas. I think that's very important. Was selling little girl Skechers a part of observing that? You know, we have ATV stores in Central Texas. And... You know, ATV stores, girl, you see these little girls, they have dirty legs and gold on their toenails. Like, their toenails are immaculate. And their little legs are just dirty and ashy and and their clothes. I love that. That's what's really been inspiring me when I think about going shopping and looking at little girls, how they dress, and how there's that awkward age where their legs are so long and then their torso is short or their arms are long and they have short legs and they just try to grow into a human. That awkward age, I think it's very important. And so I try to exaggerate that in my collages. Collage makes sense for that. Like if you're talking about people's, you know, their mismatch clothes right. and the awkwardness of the bodies. And the artists that you were talking about, that isn't really why they're using collage. I think in, with Romare Bearden, right. it's a more just, right. that's his way of painting. With Hannah Hawk, it's it's about mm-hmm. the strangeness of reality. And with Wangeshi, it's about a mythical right. kind of thing. But uh, the collage in your work is like, these people are trying to collage themselves together. You know? Right, right. You know, there's so many differences in skin tone and identity. So it's like, there is a multiple image in the work that I try to produce. I'm looking at these right now. I went up, it's like super, super, super long, and then I have a short hand. So I kind of want to also try to abstract a little in the work because, you know, our history is important in the pieces, too. There is a four-pronged approach. There is pop culture, black culture, art, art history, and American history. And I try to add all of those things into the collages as I move forward. Now, of course, I don't do every one of those things, but at least sometimes there's at least three. Uh, there's definitely two. 
come out that store often. So that's why you're going to have these multiple things, shifts in the work, because I'm speaking to these four things. And sometimes in the piece, maybe our history is more important than black culture. Mm-hmm. So. The items of clothing that you pick, they're these strong patterns and strong mm-hmm. shapes, but they're very rarely branded. There are less pop culture references in it. It'll be some big stripes, right. but it doesn't have like Hello Kitty or something on it. I know, no, God, no. No, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I have to say there's something coming in the next few weeks that's going to dispel that. Uh, okay. <laughs> Fortunately, it's really good news for me, but it's going to have something to do with uh, New York Magazine. So just. Oh. And, and my regular work don't see Hello Kitty and all those branding because uh, that's just not important. For this, more is color and texture and patterns. Those are more important. And how those things work together. Mm-hmm. You know, I could talk about chaos theory, but sometimes I get lost in it. You know, I lose my way talking about it, so I've learned to shut up. No, but go for it. Issue, go for it. I wanna... Go do it. <laughs> that is what this show is for. That's all people want. Is they want to hear someone lost. making collages of little girls talk about chaos theory. They are here for it. Yeah. Because, you know, in chaos theory, a large mixed emotions and energy just going through that. Sometimes it's called the butterfly effect, where in all the chaos and the constant chaos and you're looking at it, somehow a pattern forms. You, you start to recognize that pattern within that chaos. And so that's when chaos becomes very beautiful. So, like, when I do the textures and all the colors, sometimes your eyes look at it and it's like, this is messed up. And you look at it again, you say, well, that's, that's kind of nice. You know, so it's just this weird thing that happens. And uh, I don't want any theorists calling me or texting me or writing me, as you hear this. This is a pattern that forms this one within chaos that I'm trying to talk about. Well, it sounds you like know, you're, you're, talking about, you're talking about process. Yes. You're observing the world, and then you start to notice things come up again. Right. And it's the same that you take chaos theory, too, and that pattern, because the pattern becomes the same pattern. It doesn't deviate from that. And so that's what I kind of do in my imagery, too. I, I create the same pattern, the same space, the sameness. If you see me as the same person, not an individual, then that's a problem with you, not with me. I've been asked those questions, why don't you put backgrounds in the work, blah, blah, blah. And I said, because I want you to uh, engage the person in the picture and not look at anything else, to see her. Because all my work, the girl looks directly at you. Mm-hmm. She's engaging you in the day. And it's asking me, if you can see me as a human, then I exist. I'm playing with a lot of stuff in this little room in here. Yeah. And, uh, the majority of my paintings, the person is looking right back at you also. Right. Yeah. For me, part of it was because a lot of times I didn't want it to feel like a photograph that you were looking in on. But you know, like in a Scooby-Doo, when the paintings would have like someone hiding behind the painting and they would look with their eyes, you know, the painting would look back at you. Yeah, yeah. I I like the idea that the painting would look back at you. Right, exactly. And it will follow you. You can walk side to side and those eyes will follow you. If you're in a, a gallery and it's all painted white and then you have these white backgrounds on these paintings, this happens with sculpture too. You constantly have a feeling that there's someone in the room that you're not paying attention to, yeah. you know, when you're not looking directly yeah. at it. And 
if things are the right scale, it feels like an occupied space. It feels like there's a, a people in it, it rather than feeling like there's a series of objects in it. So I could see that being a similar effect. I agree. I agree. It's sometimes it's an optical illusion. I always think that think of somebody over there and it's really not. Yeah, I think artists are crazy. What do you think? <laughs> There's good crazy and bad crazy. Yeah, yeah, I think it's in a, in a very good way. But I also think that artists are constantly put in a place where they're outside or opposed to an ordinary way of doing things, but that ordinary way is in itself arbitrary. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the systems that we interact with are assume that you get paid at the beginning of the month. They assume that you are going to have insurance, and they assume that you have a boss, and they assume a lot of things that aren't true if you're an artist, you know? And so you're just constantly right. at having to do more work to negotiate normal systems than regular people are because you're doing a different kind of work. And so things that are easy for other people because they are inside of these systems are harder if you're an artist. And so there's more stress on that system. And I think that it doesn't necessarily mean that artists have to be crazy. I think that it's just like the system that you're put in, it's going to beat on you a little bit in a different way if you're an artist. Right. I agree. Another thing is that people always think artists should like give up the dream or do something else and get in the real struggle. And well, we're in the real struggle. I think it's something very special to take a sheet of blank paper and to create something on that paper from scratch, from you. It comes totally out of you. You present it to the world for their consumption. Maybe it's Pollyanna. I don't know, but I think it's really something very special. So when I say crazy in that terms, I'm thinking about how many people can do that. When you think of musicians, they just hit a chord and then they can, you know, go on and create a song. Not everybody can do that. So When you were saying in the beginning, just seeing Henry Tanner was a big deal to you, I think just being an example of the kind of person that you could be, especially if there's a marginalized community that isn't sure that they could be that, that seems like it's an activist moment in itself, right. you know, just showing up. Right, yeah. At that point in my life, I needed to see that. Because you can keep telling everybody to you blue in the face that you want to be an artist, there were artists before you who did very well. Until you have an example, a lot of it is, you know, you going out on faith. For me, when I actually saw that, it was so amazing. I was so excited. I remember that feeling in my back. Yeah, it's pretty special. And your work kind of would say one thing to an adult and a different thing to a child. Right. When I uh, did a little job at UT Elementary here in Austin, um, museum class, and I showed them my work, their ideas were so totally different. Why is her eye so big? You know, with things like that. Yeah. And it was funny because they didn't see the pattern of the clothes or anything, even though they were wearing clothes like I was doing. Right. They just saw the disproportion of the eyes and the hands. Why is that girl hand so big? You know, things like that. Yeah. So I had to answer those type of questions. But I think, you know, adults, when they look back and they look at the work, they see themselves. When I told you earlier I used to do my face, I didn't recognize that eight-year-old girl as an adult woman. I mean, I was so far from her. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of things in the work that I do remember. And I think when adults see it, they remember those things. 
you know, and they, they either have children or grandchildren, and they can, like, can relate to it. And, and then especially the issues of, of black beauty, I'm trying to still acknowledge that my beauty is just as important as any other beauty. So that, that argument is constantly, as an everyday argument. So I think that's why, you know, adults see it differently than kids. Because, you know, for all the, all the bags that we bring to it. I had just imagined for like a couple seconds what it would be like to go back to old photographs of myself when I was a kid and try to make collages out of them. The first thought was just it would be so embarrassing. <laughs> it's embarrassing because as an adult, I haven't projected myself backward into that space and really said, how did I end up here? I haven't thought hard about it. And I wonder uh -huh. if going through that process of, of dealing this has made you think more deeply than other people about how you ended up where you ended up. Yeah. Well, the fact that I had um, these cat eye glasses, I didn't want those. My mother picked those glasses. So when I go back and tear my face up, I'm tearing those glasses up because I got teased when I went to school because they were light blue and they had the little cat. I, which is very popular now, but I tell you, when I was wearing them, they were not popular. And I remember that. So that was part of who I was. I don't think I was super smart, but I knew I had to work harder to get good grades. That part of remembering who I was, you know, at eight years old, wanting to be everybody's friend and things like that. If you had to go back and start working as your eight-year-old self, I think all those things would come back to you. And then who are you today? And I'm thinking about eight, nine, ten-year-olds wanting to be an artist, not knowing the words, I want to be an artist, but I am a drawer. I guess we have to say, I like to draw, I am a drawer. And now, as an adult woman, having this moment, this is everything I ever wanted that I was able to dream at 25, even at 40, is being realized whole of last year, since March, I was kind of in a trance because I could not believe, I thought I was in a coma and that my sister was going to pinch me out of at any moment. You know, if you look back, I've always wanted to be an artist. So I'm like living the dream right now. I don't know. Scary. That's fantastic. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. nothing what but good. They? My daughter had a question, but she's too shy to come to the microphone. She swore she was going to do it before, but now she's <laughs> running away from me. She's 11. But she wanted to know where you get all the pictures from. Oh, where I? Okay, so I do a lot of research on my images. I go to some little girls in Haiti. I look for faces in Haiti. I look for faces in some African countries, some American faces. But there is a unique strength and innocence in the faces of Haiti girls. They have not been touched by pop culture as much as American girls have. And I feel more of me, when, how I was, when I see those faces. And that's what I want to project in the work. A fierceness, but yet a, a innocence. When I was eight years old, it took a lot to make me cry. The last resort was to cry. And the faces that I'm trying to project, I want that to be the last result is to cry. Let me figure out everything else I can do. And then at the end of the day, if that doesn't work, then yeah, I break down. But I'm going to work at being strong. 
And so that's where the faces come from. And they have to hit me. Not every face doesn't hit me. I can feel a smile. And I said, that is such a beautiful smile. I definitely have to have that in my work. Or the eyes, something like that catches me. And I was like, oh, my God, that is such a beautiful face. Look at those eyes. Those eyes, they, they can capture anyone's attention. So things like that. Well, that reminds me of something that Norman Rockwell said. Even when he was doing a city scene, he didn't like to have models who were from the city or photographs from the city because he felt like country people, their faces were more expressive and they were less of a performance. And so do you feel like the environment you grew up was itself less affected by pop culture than people who were your own age around you? Right, yes. My family, we couldn't watch a lot of TV, and you know, with so many kids, we had to entertain ourselves. So, yeah, I do look for little girls that are not traumatized or hypnotized by pop culture. Uh, I think that's really important. For kids, especially elementary school and middle school, there's like a class system based on how much you know about pop culture and how much pop culture stuff you have access to. I I can tell you firsthand, I work with kids. I've worked in the Bronx. I've worked with a lot of kids that came from Haiti, and their faces are so different. And one thing I've heard kids that grew up in the Bronx say to the kids that immigrated insultingly is, breaks my heart, they'll say, you're from Africa. Yeah. Like it's the worst insult. But it's somehow that's lesser. And so that's one of the things I want to talk about. When we have that issue right now, just writing news, and somehow it's some type of insult. It shouldn't be that. And that's what we have to, you know, get past that. That's why I work with colorism in our work, because within the black community, that this light skin is better, you know, blah, blah, blah. And this notion of somehow, you know, marginalizing somebody by saying you're from Africa. That's no marginalization, you know. We have to get out of that. So if you love my work, and you love Haiti, because most of the girls are from Haiti, and they're amazing and strong. I love the innocence of that. It's fun. When the Haitian kids first see snow ever, it's like the best day at school. <laughs> it's so fun. I can imagine. <laughs> it's hard to break kids of that, because they're all competing in terms of sophistication. You know, oh, you've never heard of this. You've never seen this. There's the kid who has all the things. Oh, they have cable TV. That was a big thing when I was a kid. Right. They had cable, and so they just knew all this stuff. Yeah, they know all the songs and all the movies. Right. Yeah. Kids are so programmed to kind of think that their survival depends on knowing those things, about being fluent in the culture that surrounds them, that it's very hard to break them of the idea that they need to sort of learn that language. Right. You know, they're immature. They don't know how to navigate that until they get much older. And then there are some older people who still want to be in the in crowd and stuff like that. We don't have that in society, but you just have to kind of work through it. I talk about some of that, I think, in my work. Not all the time, but the differences that we have to celebrate in each other. It's crazy. I want to talk a little bit about the work that is outside of the images that you're kind of known for. There are these text pieces. Oh, yeah. Were you looking at all at Glenn Ligon's text thing? Oh, no. Oh, no. You cannot. You cannot. If you do, you're trapped. You're dead. Okay. Uh, you can look at it as, as reference, but he's so known for those works and, and celebrated for it. It's really hard to do text work when somebody is just so known for it, mm-hmm. and you're coming along, and you want to do 
something very similar. You don't want to be put in the box of someone, you know, just even thinking about copying. So when I get the text pieces, I wanted to talk about the naming and the shaming of what is considered ghetto names. Right. And I wanted to change that idea because first black person was here in 1619, and he had a really strange name. I can't think of it right now, but it, it was his name. It was nothing different for, from it. So after, you know, slavery, when black people were allowed to start naming their children, first act of freedom was to give a, a, a proper name to your child that you thought of. You know, no one else did. So what I wanted to do in, in that work and not look like getting like it was to put it in book form. Because when I was typing it all out, the computer put red lines under everything. So Western's mm. idea of what was right and wrong was that all these names were wrong because they wasn't recognized. The only name that was recognized was Ebony and Keisha. And the rest of them all had red lines underneath that. And I can't, you know, one of the things I wanted to do was in literary forms, put it in a book form and make it really tight, like the words were like read like one after the other and giving it its own sense of purpose. It's really hard not to make work of like when like when you do a text work. It really is. You just have to work really hard at it. But the text is changing. The work is changing and hopefully film is going really have its own voice. Mm-hmm. What about the installation stuff? Well, I haven't had a chance to really do it yet. I love installation. I don't know if I'm really good at it. Mm-hmm. I want to learn more, but I just haven't had a chance to do it in the last couple of years. But when I was in graduate school, I did several installation pieces. And I really, really want to work at doing more and having that type of freedom. So since I'm kind of like new on the scene right now, a lot of the work that I've been doing has been really like production, not really art, art like I like to do it, and really thinking about stuff. Like this year, I'm going to slow things down, you know, and just really start concentrating. Because to do text work, you have to have quiet. To make the work make sense, you have to be able to think about it and write about it and fail. Because the first thing you do is horrible, and you have to be able to be depressed and have time to get over that depression and then start back at it. So, yeah, I want to get back at doing some more installation and more text work, base work. You briefly alluded to people encouraging artists to get into activist practice. Do you have a lot of contact with artists outside of Austin right now? Are you, like, connecting with them? Or is it mostly, like, you do your work and the curator's interested and then you're like, here, here you go. I'm not involved so much with artists outside of Austin, just the ones that I know. But you guys have to realize, even though I've been a practicing artist for a very long time, I just kind of shot on the scene right now. I don't know probably anyone. And I think that if I was old enough in the 60s, you know, the late 60s when people were marching, then I would have been out there marching. When I was, I guess I was in my early 30s, I was challenging my mother, why was she out there marching with Dr. King, you know? This was so very important, you know? And she said, I had all these babies. I couldn't go out marching. So I remember thinking that my practice is a form of marching, a part of trying to bring people together and to see people as humans. 
So I think a lot of the stuff that I'm doing is social activism. And yeah, I get out in the women's march. I'll be out there with the best of them, you know, out there uh, pushing my work and my practice. But I want to do some work with some other people. I want to see if I can get some people to we can collaborate on some issues. I, I learned in grad school I'm not a videographer. I cannot do that. I make the worst videos. <laughs> see worst videos, see Deborah Robbins. I make the worst videos ever. You know. But I want to do something, something else with someone. How long have you been trying to do video? I, I just say I want it done. But it was so bad, John. It was so, so bad. I remember people looking at him and just didn't have anything to stay at the end of it. You know, it was really bad. And that's when I realized I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it right. And my friend Colleen Smith, she makes these amazing videos. And I said, sometimes if you're good at something, that's what you should be doing. I left that alone. But I had an idea of a video installation, but I'm too coward to do it. I'm too chicken. The first one was such a big failure. Just be like Andy Warhol and just get someone to do it for you. I know, I know. I need to do something. But, you know, that's time. You know, like I said, I'm going to slow things down a little bit this year and get back to the practice of failing and succeeding. So that takes some time. So the whole summer, you know, watch out. I hear some screams from Texas. That's me throwing my pictures through the windows of my house or something. <laughs> it just didn't work. You know, just really concentrating and getting back into the uh, to the art of making art. Are you your own worst critic? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I get up in the middle of the night and I mess up. And it's so sick. I don't know how. It looks so bad, you know, and I get up and I have to start over. I know things can't be perfect, but they can be better. I always work to have the best work possible out there. That hadn't always been the case, but that's the case right now. I won't put it out if it's no good. I'll hold it back. So, yeah, I'm my own worst critic, you know. When you physically make the collages, what's the process? Do you copy a photo, blow it up, and then cut it out? I uh, actually just realized when I'm working with project from New York Magazine that I do have a process. I just always used to just do it and never thought of it as a step-by-step process. This is what happened. Once I find the face and I said, oh my God, this is the face I want to collage, then I go through the process of structuring the face. Because once I get the face, then the body or whatever's happening in, in the world, I can either use those as, you know, subtext to the work so once I get the face constructed, and then I construct the body, so I have it all with blue tape, and I take a look at it. The best thing is to let it sit overnight. I have not been doing that. I mean, I really have not been doing that. And it would be even better if I let it sit maybe three or four days before I started collaging it. But because of the pressure I've been under, I've been collaging right away. So people who want the work, they're, they're asking for more. Yeah. Work. That's good. Yeah. That's good. It just took me six weeks ago to realize I can't do it. I can't meet everybody's demands. And it's helped me sleep a little bit better. So what I do is well, once I have it in the blue tape, the next morning, if I'm a weirdo, 6 p.m. that night, I will start to glue it down, collage it down onto the paper. Once I get it collage down, I want it to try to dry two days. So the next three days, I'll be constructing 
blogging. So that's phase two. After it's dried, then that's when I started doing the pencil, the painting, any type of extra stuff that make it a little bit more political. Then I wanted to dry again. So it dries, and then I try to flat down the paper because the paper is starting to move. So the process of creating, and then once all of that is done, then I go back and overwork. Overwork instead of leaving it alone, and that is just now I have to put my big fat hand in it and make it worse. So things like that is how I do each work. When we're talking now, I'm working on one. I should work on this tomorrow, not today. But I, I told myself I needed two days to rest and not work on collages. And here I am in here working on the line today, right now. Instead of leaving it alone. Now you got to tell them that they got to wait. You got to get them used to that idea that the, the work takes time and inspiration, right? It does. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I'm just now to that point. But I think people don't realize is that when you haven't had anything before this happened, I had 89 cents on my bank account. I had 89 cents, and, and rent was still coming up, and all of this happened. Let's say we're still in 2017. In 2016, if you were eating Spam and rice and eggs and breakfast, lunch, and dinner type deals, you still remember that. Yeah. So if somebody wants to work, you try to create the work, because you know that it's ebb and flow. So now I have realized that it's, this is something different. This is different than I recognize. But it's also you create scarcity. You know, you like it's rare to be able to get one, and then there's a right, exactly. a line of collectors, exactly. and then they yeah. pay more to jump the line or whatever. That's kind of what's happening now. But where were you in summer when I was like, so I didn't get any sleep at night. It was awful. Working the like long, long, long days. And I do, I do understand that now. Amy Carroll is a wonderful artist. You know her. She told me that she was making sure she only was going to do 13 works just next year. And she wasn't, you know, trying to go over that. And I said, you know what, Amy? I'm going to do more than 13, but I'm not going to sell more than 30. And that's the end for the whole year. I need time to really make them a little bit more complicated. There's a lot more work to be done. And I understand that. I'm willing to take on that challenge, but I can't do it constantly producing work. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing what Amy's doing. I'm, I'm cutting it down. I'm cutting it. It's always good to go to a place where what you want to do, you're not quite sure it'll work in each piece. Right, exactly. And you know what? The reason why the work changed, what was requiring the change, is because I was at that point in my other work where I could do it in my sleep, you know, not literally in my sleep, but I could think of an idea and say, oh, I can go and produce that. I want to work with there's some trepidation and fear that if I put this down and it ruins the whole work, I've really ruined it. And that's what really allowed this work to happen. After I got the polycrasner grant, mm-hmm. I was able to work without that fear of, oh, I have to do this right or I won't be able to pay my rent. I worked without fear. I put stuff down. And if it worked, it was great. If it didn't work, it's fine. I still don't have enough money to pay the rent. And so when you get to that point that the polycrasma grant allowed me to get to, the work really starts to grow. And the same way with this stuff, whether it works or not or don't work, I have to try it. And I have to try new things, new patterns, new textures, all of that stuff. 
and you need time to do it. And I'm going to take that time because the work requires it. I've always done what the work requires. I've always done that. And it requires more time now to get more complicated. And I'm going to take it. I think people who are starting out and people who aren't artists, they don't get why you have to do that. I think all the best pieces contain something that only would work in that condition, but then they also right. contain a bunch of things that always work for you because you figured it out. You know how to put that figure on a white, seamless background. You know how to make right. them look like they're sitting in the space. You know how to make the faces look like they're made of disparate elements, but they're a coherent whole. Each picture that's really good, there's also at least one element that maybe wasn't going to take, and you had to kind of balance it. Right. You know, when anybody, I think, is just producing work, like you overproduce, you only do the things that you know will work, and you end up making a lot of variations on the same piece over and over. That's exactly some of the things I've been selling lately, is that I know if I place this right here, it's going to work. I want to get back, not all the way back to the point where I, when I had to take chances on work, but enough to where it opens the door. It opens the door for new possibilities when you aren't sure if this is going to work or not. And you go forward and do it anyway because the possibilities start to open up, new pathways open. And then when it does work, it's just so extra exciting and it's just worth all those times you were screaming from Texas. Right. You know, <laughs> you could appreciate it more when you, you failed, you failed. The succeeding is so good now. And that's what I want for the work. Like I said, I want the work to be earnest, and I want it to speak in a multiple voice and not just one singular chorus. So in order to do that, you have to get some more reading under my belt, get some more working in other countries and things like that to make the work more rounded. I mean, it takes a lot of people a long time to get there. I started thinking about that in early September that I need to do it. So this year, I'm going to definitely do it. What have you been reading? I haven't been reading I got We're Going to Be All Right by Jeff Tang. That's been helpful. Uh, Tallahassee Coates, his new book, mm-hmm. the one with, uh, about Barack Obama, Eight Years. Our president, yeah. That's been a very good book for me. But also, after graduate school, I started reading like junk books. You know, the books that don't require any knowledge, just for sheer act of entertainment. Yeah. You know, I started reading Roland Barthes, his image and his text, and things that he talked about in work, and how text was language. That really helped the text pieces, because he said, text is like language. It's like skin. And as you meet, you know, that language, you touch in my skin. And uh, who I am. And I thought that was, like, amazing. I really want to do more and think about that as I create text. Roland Barthes is really smart. I don't know what it was like when you were in Texas in college, but I felt like there was a lot of really dense and bad analysis and theory in the air. Uh But then when I read Roland Barthes, I'm like, oh, this is what you were trying to do. (laughs) Yeah. It's like when you just hear just a bunch of terrible rap metal and then you hear the Beastie Boys. You're like, oh, this is what you were trying to do. Yeah. Is how I think exactly. of it. Exactly. When I read Roland Barth, I feel like he's really addressing how things that we take for granted, exactly. they have a story embedded in them. But he doesn't make a leap about 
what that story has to be in the way that I feel like a lot of the more arty analysis does. Going back to him and reading his stuff has been very instructive in that way. Like I read one or two things and I was like, okay, I get this guy. But the more I read, the more I'm like, no, there's a complete intelligence there that you can mm -hmm. agree and disagree with. And you don't have to buy into every part of it in order for it to make sense, which I think right. is a failure of a lot of the later people who are writing about art from a deconstructing point of view. It's almost as if they decide they like or don't like a piece of art and then they create an analysis that makes it mm -hmm. make sense, you know? And he seems to go in with a really open mind. Right, um, right. When I was in grad school reading Judith Butler, I still I get her a little bit, but it was really, you're right, very dense. And she was talking about form and body and, and some of the same things that I'm doing in my work right now. But, God, she was talking to the 1%. I'm in the 120%. I mean, I was like, God, I really love some of the things she was talking about. But it takes PhD plus an MD and graduate to understand what she's talking about. So I did. I, I love Roland Barnes and just reading him recently has helped. I want to ask, what's Rudolph up to now? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it was about maybe 20 years ago. I, I thought I saw somebody who I thought was him, and I didn't dare go up and say, well, you know, what are you doing now? And also, I got to tell you something about Rudolph with the turnoff, too. Around Christmas, when Rudolph read those rings, he would cry at that song because he thought people were going to So... <laughs> And you're like, man up, Rudolph. <laughs> you know what? He is probably right now making art about his gender identity and about how that song like made him vulnerable and how as a man it's hard to express vulnerability. He's probably deep in that and he's just waiting to be discovered. And he's like, this woman just destroyed me, you know? Deborah Roberts, he's out there. He's in some warehouse with his scissors. He's coming. <laughs> yeah, I took his future, man. Well, tough. You know? It's America. You know, man up. So. Yeah, he couldn't take it. <laughs> this is America, man up. That's how we should end the podcast. Thank you very much, Deborah. You've been great. All right, thank you guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Weed Art. Check out our guest, Deborah Roberts, whose work is in the collection of the Studio Museum in Harlem, New York, the Block Museum of Art in Illinois, the Blanton Museum of Art in Texas, the Montclair Museum of Art in New Jersey, and the Tang Museum in New York. Deborah will be part of a group exhibition that will happen at Mass Mocha in 2019. She recently had an exhibition at the Spelman College Museum of Fine Art called The Evolution of Mimi. Those new works, as well as many of her other works, can be seen at DebraRobertsArt.com. That's D-E-B-O-R-A-H-R-O-B-E-R-T-S-A-R-T.com. It's all one word. To just connect with us or see images from the artists that we are talking about or the ones that they talk about during their interview, you can hit us up on our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, which is... All at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. Also, John has... More of my artwork at my Instagram page, which is John Mejias Pepping. We also have a Patreon set up. We have goodies available for donors like stickers, zines, and exclusive episodes. Please consider helping us with what Ever you can, then you will be one of our supporters at patreon.com backslash weed art. All one word. Weed art is produced by a pen and mnemonic recordings. Our sound.
producer, engineer, and editor is Justin Asher. Yeah, no, 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 hell no.